Welcome to another episode of Neurotransmissions. I'm Misha. Uh, and I'm Joe. And guest hosting with us today is uh, our fellow postdoc, Dr. Andre Steinecke. Hello. Uh, he's, uh, he's German. And uh, that's <laughs> very exciting for us because this is the first time we've had a, uh, a guest host on the show. So, Andre, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are. What, what do you do for your research and stuff? So... I'm a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute here in Florida, and I am studying the development of inhibitory neurons, the chandelier cells. Chandelier cells are like these funky-looking inhibitory neurons that nobody knows what they do, and you guys like are focused on figuring that out. Exactly. Nobody knows whether they're excitatory or inhibitory. Nobody knows how they are going to be developed in the cortex and what they do. Oh, cool. All right. Uh, very cool and fun. Very so, cool and fun. Yeah. We have a really special guest with us today. Uh, it is Professor Holly Klein. She is the president of the Society for Neuroscience. Uh, she is also a very active researcher, and that is what we'll be talking uh, to her about today. Uh, she works on the development of the visual system, uh, so we'll be delving into topographic maps, uh, talking about how the visual system develops in tadpoles, and talk a little bit about how we retain our memories throughout metamorphosis. Our memories throughout metamorphosis. When did you go through metamorphosis? Um, I think I was probably about 13. Oh my God, metamorphosis. I was a late metamorphosizer. Mm, Um, One thing I do think is cool about this episode is that when I was a first-year grad student, and it's shameful, I don't remember who was the president of SFN at the time, but I remember being at the SFN meeting and not knowing anything about the research of this person who was introducing all these talks and standing on this big stage in front of like 30,000 people. So uh, we thought it'd be cool, you know, sort of get to know your president sort of thing for um, anybody who is not totally familiar with her long history of, of, of frog research. So hopefully uh, people get something cool out of this. Cool. So let's hear what Professor Klein has to say. We're talking to Holly Klein today. She is the Hahn Professor for Neuroscience and the Chair of the Department for Molecular and Cellular Neuroscience at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla. And she is as well the current president of the Society for Neuroscience that we are going to talk about later on. But first, let's uh, talk about the science. So you are known for your work in uh, neurodevelopment. So can you tell us a little bit about the model system that you use to study development of the neural system? We do our research on uh, Xenopus tadpoles, and we use a a naturally occurring albino mutant of the frog tadpoles. And the reason why we do this is we're very interested in understanding mechanisms that occur very early in uh, brain circuit development. And the advantage of using Xenopus, and in particular the visual system of these animals, is that we can actually um, observe structural and functional changes in the development of this circuit in the intact animal. And the other major value of of using these animals is that, um, again, we're interested in the visual system. We can manipulate the experience that these animals receive and um, study directly the consequences of changes in visual experience on brain circuit development. So the the albino tadpole, is that the only one that is specifically a transparent frog, or uh, do other 
variants of Xenopus have, have this feature? Naturally occurring, well, the, the other Xenopus have pigment in their skin, and, um, and it just so happens that the pigment is focused over the, the, or concentrated over the region of their brain where visual information <laughs> is processed. So that's exactly the part that we want to study. And um, in these albinos, they, they don't have the pigment there, and so we can do our experiments. There is another organism which is um, somewhat transparent, and that's the zebrafish. At early stages in development, many studies in zebrafish are also done looking at the visual system. By way of introduction for our listeners, maybe you could tell us a brief history of Sinopus in neuroscience research. The, the frog visual system has, is actually a, a classic um, experimental system in which to study visual system processing or visual information processing and also uh, the development of visual connection. So for instance, there's a famous story or uh, a famous paper uh, by Jeremy Letvin called What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. And uh, this was uh, a recount of, of scientific investigations about uh, the response to visual stimuli when recording electrical responses in, in the optic tectal neurons. So that was a study done in, in the 60s, and it really demonstrated that this experimental system can be used to try to understand how visual information is processed. Then there's a whole other area where uh, frogs and xenopus have contributed to our understanding of the brain, and that has to do with the development of topographic maps. So topographic maps are um, a representation of our sensory world, the visual world in this case, within the brain. And um, many classic studies have been done which, first off, documented the topography of visual input into the central nervous system, and then secondarily studied how these topographic maps uh, can come about during development. And so some of your work has focused on the role of uh, visual activity, activity from the retina projecting into the brain on the formation of these topographic maps. How, how do you and your colleagues uh, manipulate the, the circuit in, during development, and what have you found that's particularly surprising um, about this process? Several studies contributed to information which led to the conclusion that two types of mechanisms contribute to the development of topographic maps. One is the organization of um, molecules in the retina and in the target area, the optic tectum, which roughly organize the projection from the retina into the central nervous system. And then the other fundamental mechanism was the, the role of visual experience or activity on what was thought to be refining this topographic map. We really have focused almost exclusively on the role of visual experience in organizing the map, and we wanted to understand exactly what uh, kinds of cellular mechanisms are engaged by visual activity in order to refine the map. So one of the things that I find particularly fascinating is that you and your colleagues made the observation that um, there's a very specific type of visual input that a tadpole nervous system can expect to experience um, even before it has its eyes formed, which is that the tadpoles are always moving forward, and uh, this basically puts constraints on the way visual information 
flows over the eye. So what have you found about um, the natural behavior of the tadpole uh, during development that facilitates the, uh, the emergence of these types of maps? One reason that we use tadpoles uh, to study visual system development and the role of experience is that as soon as the retina is hooked up into the optic tectum, as soon as the axons reach the optic tectum and make synaptic connections, visual experience uh, through the retina is contributing to the organization of that projection. And what we found is that these animals in, in their natural world are always swimming forward. So the preponderance of the visual experience that they receive is an anterior to posterior motion. And we conducted a series of experiments to test whether or not this predominant anterior to posterior motion was uh, contributing to the development of the organized topographic projection. And the way that we did that uh, was simply to control the visual experience that they get so that the, some animals receive the normal anterior to posterior visual stimulation, and their siblings received posterior to anterior, as if the, the world was always moving past them from back to front. And these animals that were reared for four days in the posterior to anterior visual stimulus failed to develop a topographic map. And so information within the central nervous system could not be used to interpret the spatial organization of, a, of things in the world. Well, did you notice anything particularly strange about those tadpoles that were raised in the posterior to anterior visual experience? Did they have any demonstrable changes in visually guided behavior, finding food or anything like that? So that, that's a great question. The, the next step in, a, in some of the experiments that we're going to do is to test whether or not there are behavioral repercussions. And so you would fully predict that. And now um, what we're discussing in the lab is what's the best way, what's the best behavioral paradigm to test? You study tadpoles, which are um, an early developmental stage of the frog, but they undergo a form of metamorphosis where... Um, their body changes tremendously. I, I, I imagine trying to picture a frog in my head right now that maybe even the eye's position on the head moves. So I wonder what happens in a species that undergoes experience-dependent development at a stage that doesn't resemble the adult stage. Are, are, there, are there continued phases of plasticity post-metamorphosis? So actually, this, this question of how the brain is reorganized as a result of metamorphosis was why I started working on these animals in the first place. Metamorphosis is super interesting because it's completely controlled by a single hormone, thyroxin, and the brain and the eyes change radically uh, under, the, under the control or under the influence of thyroxin. So the eyes move from the sideways positions on the side of the head to the top. And as a result, now these animals have the opportunity for binocular visual input. They can see the same part of the visual field with both eyes. So that means that their brain has to change from processing information just from one eye to being able to process vis uh, visual information, binocular information. So that's super interesting. And we've been doing a series of experiments in my lab recently. Even though I was first interested in this many years ago as a postdoc, we've returned to um, this question 
to examine how thyroxin regulates the proliferation of cells within the brain, their connectivity, and how the connectivity changes in response to visual experience combined with thyroxin. And it's still a super interesting area. Another comment about thyroxin, mammals um, have a, a surge of thyroxin in the last trimester of uh, intrauterine development. And so even though you might think, you know, thyroxin and metamorphosis is just some weird frog thing. It's actually a very important regulator of brain development in mammalian species as well. So it's conserved across all these different taxa, basically. As far as we know, yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention about uh, frogs, tadpoles, and, and visual experience is that, as I mentioned, the frogs uh, use visual experience from the very beginning when, they're, when their visual system is being hooked up. In mammalian species and in animals that develop in eggs, they don't have the benefit of visual experience early on to, to guide the wiring of these developing circuits. And what they use instead are waves of spontaneous activity that, that um, flow across the retina. And it's very interesting that these benefits or the downstream of consequences of these waves of spontaneous activity are very similar to the benefits of visual experience that we see in tadpoles. And I think that these waves are actually an evolutionary adaptation to brain development in these animals that is occurring either in eggs or in utero. So the developing embryo of a mammal will basically have a genetic instruction that the eyes will produce some kind of activity that resembles things that might occur in the real world, even though that the eye isn't being exposed to the real world. Yes, and the, another major clue is that these spontaneous waves also move um, in the same predo predominant direction of temporal retina to nasal retina, as we see occurs with the anterior-posterior motion in, in, uh, in tadpoles. Wow, that's really cool. It would be interesting to see what happens to uh, marsupials who uh, essentially have a very different uh, developmental system, right? They leave the uterus much earlier. Um, yeah, I wonder how much of that is due to the transition of being um, in a, like a transparent egg versus mm -hmm. being like in a completely dark developmental environment. That's right. So if marsupials still have their eyes closed, yeah. then they're still going to need some source of activity that's going to orchestrate or organize their central projections. So how different is the visual system development from other sensory systems? How much can you extrapolate from uh, your work into other fields? So it appears to be this, this principle of early activity, uh, either driven by spontaneous sources or by um, uh, real sensory input, seems to be conserved. So one, it's... Uh, um, used across sensory modalities. So, for instance, in hearing, there are waves of activity um, across the cochlea which help organize central projections in, in the auditory system. So that's been clearly demonstrated. In, um, in the somatosensory system, it also seems to be the case. So if you look within one animal at several different sensory modalities, the principle seems to hold. If you look across species at... A, at these different modalities, it also seems to hold too. In the, in the olfactory system, basically every sensory modality we know. 
and also in non-sensory um, circuits as well. So one of, some of the first studies in this area were actually done looking at spinal cord development. And um, Ann Becker, many years ago, followed up by Lynn Landmesser, recognized and then studied these early spontaneous activity within spinal cord circuits. And with further study, they realized that these spontaneous leg movements and muscle movements were actually carried out as the central pattern generators within the spinal cord were being established and fine-tuned. So I think that this general principle of activity being used to refine circuit connectivity so that the output is perfected, is, is, uh, that's a very general principle. So we talked about now that everything is changing throughout development, so the wires are changing. And everything is plastic, but I have the impression that I don't see differently than I was seeing when I was 10 years old. And how is it that I can still have a persistent memory from the age when I was three? Yeah, the brain is really amazing because it has to accommodate change, i.e. have plasticity, but it also has to have stability, meaning what we call homeostasis. So for many years, these two, uh, stability and plasticity, have been considered to be very different from one another at the opposite ends of a spectrum. And now with more and more research, we, we realize that the cellular mechanisms underlying the stability and plasticity within circuits are actually quite close to one another. But that just presses the question, of, well, then how are they different? How, how can your brain be plastic and stable at the same time? I think that's an important area of research. So speaking of things changing all the time, you've, you've been um, a, a Xenopus researcher for a number of years, and now you have this new role as president of the Society for Neuroscience, which is the biggest neuroscience organization in the world. So what have been some of the, I mean, in addition to being a tremendous honor, I'm sure there's probably a lot of responsibility. So what has been the, the, the biggest adjustment you've made from running a lab and uh, a department to running basically all of neuroscience, as far as I can tell. Well, first, I, sh I should say it is a tremendous honor to be um, the president of the Society for Neuroscience. The things that have um, become most important for me in this role pertain to advocacy and the importance of educating the public in science and what we learn from science and how we learn from science. The process of science is a very important thing that would be great if the public understood in, in great detail. So to kind of uh, end on that note, you know, for people who are listening who might be uh, undergraduates or graduate students who are, uh, I'm, I'm sure also feel that, you know, there's uh, not always a complete understanding uh, from the public's point of view of what exactly we're doing. And the Society for Neuroscience is involved in a lot of advocacy. So what can people do to get involved in this? What can people do to help out and maybe to expand their career, not just from uh, bench work, but into uh, science advocacy? The Society for Neuroscience has, um, is organized into chapters, and basically the chapters are a way where the society can spread its web through all, um, all the local communities that, where there are neuroscientists. And um, so I would suggest if people are interested in becoming more active that they join a local chapter of the Society for Neuroscience and through that they can get assistance from uh, the society, the, the central office in, in Washington, D.C. about how to carry out advocacy. Cool. It would be very important. 
Professor Klein, thank you so much for joining us today. This is great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, that's today's episode. Thanks for listening. And make sure to check out sfn.org if you want to find out about opportunities for volunteering and helping with science outreach and advocacy. Uh, And thank you so much to Holly Klein. She was a great sport in doing this interview with us. Uh, We apologize because at the last minute we figured out that nobody actually asked her whether she's going to do this interview. Uh, We just kind of put it in her schedule when she visited. So that was super nice of her. Right, and it shows what a pro she is. and also, thanks to Andre. Thanks for uh, for sitting in with us. That was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And um, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at JW Science. Misha's at Salad Zombie. The podcast is at NeuroPodcast. And um, Misha has me wanting to say some joke here, but it's stupid, so I'm just going to say goodbye. Later. Bye. Bye. Bye.